Tuesday, February 28th marks one year since we launched the DSR Daily Brief. We're showing our thanks by providing you with our best sale price ever on membership. From now through March 4th, visit the dsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DAILYBRIEF to receive 50% off our regular membership price of $50 per year or $5 per month. Members receive access to bonus content, an ad-free listening experience, exclusive blog posts, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. This is a one-time only offer, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DAILYBRIEF to receive 50% off. Thank you for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from sunny Washington, D.C., where it's March, and we're delighted about that. And uh, we're also delighted to be joined by our friends, like Ed Luce of the Financial Times. How are you doing, Ed? Splendidly. Thank you, David. Splendidly. Try to top that. David Sanger of the New York Times? Uh, you know, I cannot top the way our friend Ed Luce uses the English language. So I'll just say in my sort of New York way, yeah, we're fine. Fine. We're fine. We're doing okay here. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's great. And we also have uh, Corey Shockey joining us. And uh, I, I see her appearing on the, the screen here, just in perfect timing. Um, how you doing, Corey? I am exceedingly well, David. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent. See there, David Sanger, you know? You see? You can be from the United States and still speak and English. Do you notice? Do you notice that Corey has in the background her latest copies of The Economist and Foreign Affairs, proving that she is the literary woman that we knew she was. <laughs> I know you don't mean it as a compliment, David, but I'm taking it as one. Okay. <laughs> well, glad we've gotten this out of our system. Let me start in a part of the world where, you know, things have always been bubbling over, but there's been one constant, and that's Israel. The uh, U.S.-Israel relationship has always been rock solid, even though it's been tested many times over the course of the past several decades, particularly starting about 30 years ago. You had the massacres in Lebanon. The relationship has stayed solid since then. You had Palestinian settlements uh, uh, destroyed and, and, and replaced by Israeli settlements stayed the same. You've had the Israelis in the past few years take some particularly tough shots at their own democracy, stayed the same. They weren't really quick to join our side in Ukraine, stayed the same. But it seems to me that something is happening right now, and 
In just the past couple of days, you've had a major push by the Netanyahu administration to gut the independent judiciary in that country. And then, as a consequence of what is effectively a pogrom that was run in a Palestinian village, Huara, you had the finance minister of Israel today calling for that village to be wiped out by the state of Israel, which was really kind of stunning language and what a lot of people were worried about. Do you think the relationship can survive intact this sort of assault, Corey? I think it depends on what Israeli civil society and Israeli people do. The choices of the Netanyahu government, both in who they included in the coalition and the choices that they made subsequently, are genuinely troubling. But we have also seen the vibrancy of Israelis themselves expressing concern about those choices. And I think that's a really important bellwether in the U.S.-Israeli relationship, the notion that the Israeli political system is producing an outcome that Israelis themselves are profoundly concerned about. And I think that will weigh heavily in the United States-Israel relationship. Ed, when she says the vibrancy, she refers to hundreds of thousands of Israelis protesting these most recent attacks on democracy, particularly with regard to the Supreme Court. But still, we don't know where that is going. And I I should say that as we are recording this, I think this evening, Prime Minister Netanyahu is giving a speech. We'll see where that goes. The U.S. State Department is likely to comment on this, even as we are recording this. We'll see where that goes. But where do you think this heads, Ed? I mean, the president of Israel, um, Isaac Herzog, Bougie Herzog, who was a former leader of the Israeli Labour Party, very nearly became prime minister in one of the previous elections, Netanyahu won, describes Israel as being on the brink of political and constitutional collapse. And I think that's correct. You know, Israel has an unusual political system. It doesn't have a written constitution. It doesn't have, it only has one legislature. Uh, It's a unicameral democracy. And the only real check, therefore, on the power of a government with a majority of that legislature is from the legal system. And that is sort of developed as a sort of informal constitutional body of, of Israeli politics in the last 70 years. And that's being removed in what is an explicit power grab by Netanyahu with both sort of raw political motives to remove checks on his power, but also much more personal motives to prevent his prosecution for corruption, among other things. So this is kind of DEFCON whatever, three, in terms of America's relationship with Israel, if indeed it values Israel as a liberal democracy. So, you know, I hope that the State Department will be very robust if, as we expect, Netanyahu does not back down on this, because Israel's democracy is kind of at stake. This would be a move into Orban, kind of a liberal democracy, which is just a posh term for autocracy. So a couple of things. I think the first question is, 
how long this government lasts. We have not seen, you know, the Israeli governments in recent times have been known for many things, but longevity has not been one of them. So it is conceivable that this most right-wing government that we've ever seen in Israel uh, may not last long and that that may limit some of the damage. The question then is whether anything that they do here can be undone. The relationship between President Biden and Bibi Netanyahu wasn't so great before all of this happened. The State Department's been pretty upfront on almost all of these major changes, and particularly on the, the settlements issue. Netanyahu has tried to make the argument that there are other liberal democracies in which a legislature can overrule the Supreme Court and tries to argue that what he's doing is more like the system in Canada. I don't think these arguments are working out for him terribly well, and it is pretty transparent that he wants to get this done at a moment that he's still facing trial himself or on trial himself. So I don't think this is headed anywhere good. And here's what really worries me about it. On top of all of the questions about the quality of Israeli democracy, which should be concerning enough, we're actually at a point where Israel and the United States have to get on the same page about Iran really quickly. The IAEA has reportedly come up with evidence that they found the enrichment of uranium at just shy of bomb grade, just below 90%, with 84% enrichment. We've never seen this in Iran before. And it may be that the amounts are so small that it does not trigger a crisis. But can you imagine trying to manage an Iran crisis, which has been hard enough between the United States and Israel in more normal times, while this is going on and while this government is has wrapped itself in so much chaos? Really hard to figure out how we do that. And a high risk, I think, that the Netanyahu may go off and act against Iran unilaterally as part of a diversion from from this own disputes here at home. It's funny you should mention that, David, because I have a column going up any minute now at the Daily Beast talking about the likely crises the United States will face in the year ahead. And as part of my doing of my due diligence there, imitating my friends who are actual reporters, I talk to people in the United States government, and without betraying any of my sources, I would say, and the article says, that the crisis they think is most dangerous is Iran, for just the reasons that you've said, because they believe that it's quite possible this Israeli administration, even in a, you know calm times in the U.S.-Israel relationship, would push for action in this regard, that it's the most hardline administration of its kind in this time. But, Corey, here's the other side of that. Uh, when talking to people in the U.S. government, they note that it's U.S. policy not to let Iran to have nuclear weapons either. So, doesn't I mean, the Israelis may be extreme and the Israelis may be pushing for action, but if they do, based on what I've heard, my bet is the United States goes along with them. I don't know, David. It seems to me it depends on the circumstances. And in particular, the, what the Israelis do, what the Iranians do in response, my guess is that Israel wouldn't coordinate with us 
met if they were going to strike the Iranian nuclear facilities because they wouldn't want us to try and restrict anything they might elect to do. And so, you know, if Israel takes a series of military actions against Iran that precipitate, for example, retaliation against Saudi Arabia, the UAE, other of the Gulf countries, that probably would precipitate an American military response. But I don't see Israel likely to choose including us in an initial strike. I'd be very surprised if a Biden administration would support an, a with no precipitating action, why do we do this right now? military strike on Iran. And so I think the question would be, why would Israel do this now if not for assisting Netanyahu's domestic political troubles? If it's about Netanyahu's domestic political troubles, then that makes it very difficult to organize multilateral responses, especially if Iran retaliates against other countries in the region are likely to blame Israel for that retaliation. And it makes it hard for the United States to organize international support for the exact policy you're describing, David, which is we got to get the Iranian nuclear program under control. So, Ed, over the weekend, our CIA director over the past couple of days, our CIA director, Bill Burns, said that they had not seen a signal that the Supreme Leader had made the decision to proceed with the production of nuclear weapons in Iran. But when I said I thought the United States would act, my sense is that if they saw that signal, if they felt Iran was about to acquire a nuclear weapon or take a step that would allow them to do it, they would feel compelled to act. Do you think that's the right move? That's such a hard one to answer. They've got the IEA, I think, found that they'd been enriching, had traces of uh, evidence to show they'd been enriching up to 83%. And the threshold, I think, for nuclear weapons is 90%. And under the original nuclear deal from the Obama years, from 2015, the limit is something like 3.6%. David will correct me. So, you know, clearly you don't enrich to 83% by accident. They're, They're close to on the threshold of developing weapons grade enrichment and that does that does present would present the biden administration if it were confirmed with an extreme quandary because u.s strikes on a country the size of iran that is linked ever more closely with russia and with china which of course were originally part of the of the group that negotiated the iran nuclear deal would be super risky and complicated on the other hand, allowing Iran to go over that threshold without com- without consequence would also be too. So, you know, I would hate to, I would hate to be Biden making that decision and then throw in the wild card of Netanyahu, desperate to divert attention. You know, this this has the makings of whoever you spoke to for your for your piece, which I'll read with interest. David was quite right to flag this as one of the top issues for the coming for the coming weeks and months. David, just two quick thoughts on this. First, Corey was exactly right that the history shows the Israelis 
if they give advance notice, it's usually as an event is about to happen, facilities about to blow up or whatever, or they give notice right after it's happened. So whatever it is, I don't think Biden's going to have time to get into a discussion with Netanyahu about whether it's wise or not. The Israeli strategy has always been that if Iran retaliates, the U.S. would probably come to their aid in dealing with the retaliation. So in other words, we would get sucked into these in the, in the, the way this has frequently been war-gamed out. To Ed's point, the Iranians have blown past every red line the West and others have put together and that were put together in various, uh, in various agreements. The 2015 agreement, as Ed said, calls for 3.6 or 4% enrichment, which is basically what you use for nuclear power plants. They went back up and did 20, which they could have a reasonable uh, use for, for a small test reactor they have. Then they were doing 60, and we have not heard from the IEA about what the theories are about why they found these particles that were up near bomb grade. Even if they did produce bomb grade material, if you believe the intelligence that you suggested, uh, that you, you mentioned that Bill Burns discussed, it would probably take a year or two to build an actual nuclear weapon. But the Israelis and the U.S. would probably have a very different view about how you would use that time. The Israeli view is you don't allow that moment to come. At the moment that they've got the nuclear fuel, you want to make sure that they have no way to actually turn it into a weapon. The U.S. would probably say there's time for diplomacy here and let's come up with a, another option than just bombing them. Could be another Olympic Games like Cyberstrike, could be a diplomatic agreement. But the diplomacy is hard to imagine putting together right now because the Russians and the Chinese, who were the West side on this in 2015, as Ed pointed out, are now playing a very different side to this. And with the Russians trying to get drones from Iran and the Iranians trying to get, we believe, fighter jets from Russia, they've got much different agenda than they had seven years ago. I'd love to discuss this more. There's a lot more to this issue. I think it is one of the looming threats. Another one of the looming threats in all of this, though, which warrants a bit of discussion, is this continuing possibility that the Chinese step up and help the Russians in Ukraine. Um, and I think there is a sense in the U.S. government, Corey, that the, the Chinese are in an awkward position here. They're not happy with how this war has gone. They want to show where that they uh, remain supportive of Russia, but they don't want to get entangled in what could be a, an increasingly worse mess for the Russians. Of course, if they came in with both feet, it could, could be a game changer in Ukraine. I think right now the U.S. effort is to use all channels, including all of our allies, speaking to the Chinese and saying, don't continue with this. And I also think, parenthetically, that the view of some in the U.S. government is that this briefly reported offer of 100 drones or something like that from the Chinese to the Russians was kind of you know, face-saving, but it wasn't significant in any real way. So the Chinese could say, well, yeah, we helped, but not no, we're, you know, we're, we're not tipping the balance in this whole thing. What's your view of this situation? That China 
Chinese could make a good case that you guys are helping your friends. Why can't I help my friends? And that would be a major escalation in the war. It would dramatically reduce the likelihood of Ukrainian success, Ukrainian success in pushing Russia out of its territory in the next year. And it would substantially, like it would put China, Russia, and Iran in the anti-Western category. I'd be surprised if the Chinese actually do this because it looks to me like that part of China's decision about jettisoning their zero COVID policy was because of the economic consequences of continuing with it and getting the Chinese economy back on track, I think is likely to be the Chinese government's priority. And unless they think weapon sales to Russia for the war in Ukraine are worth the stampede of restrictions, I'd be surprised if they move forward with it. Although it's in their interest to flirt with doing it in order to remind us that they actually could tip the balance of this war in a way we are very much not wanting it to go. Well, I think that's a very thoughtful analysis from Corey there, that it's in their interest, but they probably won't do it because doing it is not in their interest. Flirting with doing it is. What do you think, Ed? I agree with that uh, entirely. I mean, the two things that have most surprised us about this war is one, the resilience of the Ukrainian military, and two is the resilience of the Russian economy. And one of the sort of explanations for its resilience is the degree of Chinese support economically that they've stepped up and an increasing sort of share of Russian trade is now conducted in Yuan, in Chinese Yuan. So the Chinese have been providing a lot of economic help, some of it actually with military application um, to the Russian economy, and have therefore already been helping sustain Russia. Going over the red line, though, of actually supplying direct sort of munitions and, and, and armaments that can tip the balance in this war would cost China a massive amount. And I think, you know, Xi Jinping is in a precarious enough position as it is in terms of the Chinese economy, in terms of the Chinese public's mood, not to want to inflict that economic self-harm on himself at any point, but particularly at this point. He is in a, a precarious situation. So I would agree fully with Corey's view that it's in their interest to flirt with this, but not to do it. David, in doing my article... I asked Jake Sullivan the same question. Jake Sullivan said to me, Russia's conduct in this war has put China in a difficult position. They have their own challenges at home and worldwide, and to be drawn further into a conflict that Russia has mismanaged from the start is a distraction and a potential blow to their international relationships they do not need. He's right in the analysis of all of that. The question is, to what degree do they find value in the Russians continuing to sort of drag us further into this conflict, which the Chinese are somewhat enjoying because it distracts attention in the administration from the focus on the Indo-Pacific, from forces there, from money and attention there. But I fully agree they don't want to become a participant in the war. And they probably don't want to get anywhere near the secondary sanctions. So I think 
it was pretty wise of both uh, Jake Sullivan and Secretary of State Blinken to leak out during the Munich Security Conference when we were there, I guess, weekend before last. It's all a blur now, just b- before the president went to Warsaw, that they had picked up evidence of the Chinese and the Russians talking about this. I do warn you, though, that they did the same thing in the summer last year that the Iranians were considering providing drones to the Russians, and the Iranians went ahead anyway. And they released the evidence that the Russians were getting ready to invade Ukraine, and the Russians went ahead anyway. I think it's a slightly different calculus for the Chinese here, uh, and I suspect that they probably won't do very much, but I think this is going to go on for some time. Yeah, I, well, it's I, China's a giant economy integrated with the rest of the world in a way that Iran is. Not so much. And uh, the Chinese tend to make better decisions than the Iranians do. So I, I, I think it may turn out differently. This, of course, is the point in this conversation where we take a break and say thanks to everybody in the general public for joining us. And that if you want to hear the whole podcast or any of our podcasts in their entirety, the way to do that is to become a member. Go to the dsrnetwork.com and uh, become a member. Five bucks a month. That's not so much. And there's lots more interesting stuff coming, including right here in this podcast, if you're a member, in just one moment. <laughs> 